0: Welcome back to another episode of Three Mics in a Mixer. <laughs> Sam, as Sam. always, I'm Mike, and these are my two and hosts. A mixer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, ladies and gentlemen, that was Sam, our guest. Hey, um, yeah. That was a first. I've, we've never had our guest lead in the podcast. So proactive. He's actually interviewing to take over John's spot when John gets married. Absolutely. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, no, ladies and gentlemen, we're back. It's good to be with you, and we've got Sam here, as you now know. Sam, how's it going?
0: It's going all right. Um, To be fair, just so you both are reminded, I did tell you both I was going to do that when on the pod. So just a (laughs) reminder that at Mark's party, I did already run that joke by you. I must have blocked it out. Um, Classic. Yeah.
1: Hey, I I have mispronounced more last names on this podcast than I care to count. So can you say your last name for us?
0: Absolutely. So my name is Sam Wrenchler. It's way easier to say than spell. It's just wrench and then allure.
2: <laughs> it, it, it looks like rent slur. Yeah, rent Schiller. Yeah, I sure. yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sure I've sure had had a lot. A lot of just ones. just to understand uh, what what we're looking at here. But Sam, you some fun facts about you for people who don't know. Mm-hmm. You were in three plays, two of them being musicals in high schools, and played the lead Danny Zuko in Greece senior year. You bet. And you felt like a certain character from High School Musical.
0: Yeah, I wrote um, in my little get to know me blurb to you know apply for this podcast position as a guest Um, i wrote that i felt like a real life troy bolton because boy did i not a single other person in drama club did any sports at all and so they were somewhat impressed that i was moderately athletic Sam, you actually kind of look like Zac Efron. I
1: mean, your hair, at least, the swoop, mm-hmm. you know, you really embody that Absolutely. character. I your def- school's
2: mascot was the Wildcats.
0: Ooh, okay. Well, now that we've started this, <laughs> now we've actually built up a lot of evidence for this. Um, yeah, I did definitely rock the Justin Bieber hair swoop for a long time at the same time as our friend Zac Efron. Um, and prior to going to Celine High School, I did go to the private Christian school in in saline which did have the mascot of the wildcats
2: did you know that the writers of high school musical just took your life and just put it on the screen with that. i yeah.
0: signed an nda so i can't talk uh, about whether i do or do not know that
2: <laughs> well you already mentioned um a certain private high school in uh saline michigan which is mm-hmm. just outside of ann arbor correct um and there's something special about your hometown i think it has to do with your last name
0: Oh, yeah. So we're, we're coming out with the big guns here. Um, So Saline is a small town outside of Ann Arbor. Not that exciting, mostly white, fairly small, mostly just a suburb of a slightly larger suburb, suburb-like town of Ann Arbor. But uh, there are multiple generations of wrenchlers that have been there for quite a long time, arguably starting the town in some ways. But um, my grandfather grew up on what is now the Rentschler Farm Museum Homestead, uh, which previously was a fully operational
2: farm until it was sold to the city, um, probably in the late 80s or 90s. And so there's just like existential pressure on you to like stay in town mm-hmm. and to continue the family name. Absolutely. That's definitely something I felt 100%.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Mayor Rentschler. It could went. happen. He, he went away to
1: the big city and now he's returned to, uh, to run the town.
2: This could be a Hallmark movie in the making.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This time, I won't let my life rights get taken away by different movie writers. So I'm going to have to write it myself. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so speaking of Ann Arbor, you mm-hmm. went to a certain school that's also in that town, uh, University of Michigan. Yeah. Uh, it rings a bell. Um, yeah. I went to the University
0: of Michigan twice, actually, which... Whenever I say, I assume people understand, it means that I went to undergrad and grad school, but my friends have prompted me and told me that. In fact, it does sound like I just dropped out and then resumed later on. But um, I went there for undergrad um, and got a degree in political science and international studies, and then promptly decided that I didn't wanna do that and uh, did grad school for social work. I'm sure there's a lot of overlap between
1: social work and international studies.
0: Well, there's a lot of overlap between some political science study and social work, Um, but I think a lot of the social skills that drew me to international studies and poli-sci with the original thought, maybe I'll work in the State Department, maybe I'll work between people, be an ambassador, mediator, a lot of those skills, when applied more personally, are absolutely what drew me to social work and to therapy.
2: And we'll come back to this, but your job right now is a licensed therapist, and in parentheses, you have a mental health therapist. Correct. Um, so that's quite quite the change, like you like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of random talents, um, you're a big word association guy. Yeah,
0: yeah, big word association guy. Actually, I just got back from a trip, and um, there were a group of us, and we were walking around the city, and. Some My friends kept calling me out that my friend Andreas and I, standing in the back of our group, would nonstop talk the entire time we were walking around New York, and we're just constantly word-associating, making stupid puns, jokes, Um, but um, it mostly gets me in trouble by getting songs stuck in my head, as I constantly complain to my father about
2: And like, what is that? Does that look like you, you hear a word and you know what there's a song with that word in it or is it more? Exactly.
0: Yeah. So if someone says a word and I recognize that as, you know, kind of a song title or a, you know, part of a lyric that's part of the main part of the song, um, that song very likely will be something that comes to mind. Maybe I'll make a joke about it, sing some of, sing some of it. But even if I don't make a joke, but especially if I do, it will absolutely get stuck in my head. And a great example of this, unfortunately, is doing the laundry in my apartment. There are dryers, rows of dryers stacked on top of each other, and the payment slots are in the same spot. So there's an upper and a lower. And without fail, I will get the song um, Can't Keep My Hands to Myself by Selena Gomez stuck in my head. Because of the chorus, all of the downs and the uppers keep making love to each other without fail every time I dry my laundry.
1: Uh, First of all, fantastic (laughs) Secondly,
0: I I hear a way to
1: resolve this whole song stuck in your head thing is to listen to the song all the way through Have -hmm. you tried that? Is that a myth?
0: I have tried that and I think there is some truth to it. I think that Absolutely only parts of the song get stuck in my head and if I listen to enough of the song Sometimes it will succeed in resolving it other times it absolutely just makes it worse so I've got to listen to that whole song all the way through and then listen to something else and then odds are that new thing will be stuck in my head so it's a mostly a trade more than a solution
2: that's fair that's fair um, what for you what do you think caused this fascination with word association
0: yeah, I don't know if I would call it a fascination. I think or it's more of just a <laughs> the curse. A, yeah, he's a, he's a prisoner inside his own mind. It sounds like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's mostly just something that has always been there. I actually think it is a piece of um, what becomes more holistically kind of a good memory of what people say, which is, unshockingly, very important for my job uh, in remembering what people talk about, what they have said. And it saves me a lot of time not having to write things down (laughs) if I can remember. Oh, yeah, I remember what we talked about last week. Uh, And then actually being telling the
2: truth. And one one of your favorite places in Chicago, North Avenue Beach.
0: Love it. You got a lot of volleyball. Yep. Yeah. Right by Castaways. You got to get that silhouette of this, that big old boat. I don't know. Restaurant
2: for, for those at home, Google North Avenue Beach, Chicago. You'll know what we're talking about. Absolutely,
0: but it's become a favorite spot for multiple reasons. I think it's a great area to run by. I think that's you know a huge motivator for me to actually exercise when it's nice out. Is that the lake is right there. But um, volleyball is a go-to sport that I love to play um, with friends, and it was actually one of the first social things I got involved with here in the city when I moved.
2: And the last thing that we ask our guests to provide is the proudest accomplishment. But I think we're going to circle back to that at the end okay. of the podcast. Sure. Um, Hold but, on to your seats, people. Oh yeah. That's good. <laughs> um, and I so I know that you mentioned being a um mental health therapist hmm. um, well you mentioned it but yeah well yeah we we mentioned it you are a mental health therapist i am in fact. the reason why i mentioned it is because you are
1: is it does if anyone's curious what he does he's a mental health therapist
2: <laughs> <laughs> this segue uh, super smooth thank you i uh i would do my best um so um Tell us a little bit about what that means. If, if I were to go in and say, I, you know what, I know the broader category. What does that specifically mean to be? Sure. Yeah.
0: I do mostly what you kind of imagine. If you are thinking of someone sitting on a couch, another person sitting on the couch, not lying down on the couch. I don't do that type of therapy. It's not Sigmund Freud, but someone sitting on a couch, me sitting in my office chair and mostly just listening to them talk about what's going on in their life. And, Um, My method that I try to focus on is collaborative and sharing um, tools and asking questions to explore what they're experiencing and thinking in order to find solutions that they have either already used in the past that have been has been effective or are built upon things that are already natural skills they may have or things they're interested in. So it's, it's mostly asking questions and, and having a conversation.
1: Is there anything that you find in your sessions is a big unlock for um, increasing vulnerability or coming to some sort of healing from depression, anxiety, et cetera?
0: So you're asking for my secret right off the bat? Yeah, it's yeah, well, your secret sauce? Let's <laughs>
1: dive straight into it.
0: So I actually am very surprised at how easily some of my clients and I will build rapport Um, because I have a very structured kind of initial uh, session more or less, where I'll have them go through a biopsychosocial assessment. So that's assessment of medical health history, kind of social family history, as well as their mental health history naturally. Um, And it's pretty Organized pretty regimented. I say the same questions. I make the same jokes every time I have an initial appointment But for whatever reason um, And I think it's mostly just the questions and the precursors to those questions. We get a lot of information about them um, out there in the open I Show that you know, I'm listening and that I'm interested and then we come back and we talk about what their goals are and so when you start with that collaboration, or I guess when we have started with that collaboration, it kind of goes from there and just kind of builds pretty naturally.
2: I know that a lot of times, and I think recently we've seen a lot of improvements in this area, but there's a lot of like stigma around mm-hmm. talking about mental health. Yeah. How have you seen that in your office? What does that look like? And how do you kind of try to break those barriers down?
0: Great question. So those of you who don't know me and you can't tell through the podcast, um, I'm 25 so I'm in my mid 20s and as a result of that being fairly apparent in terms of my bio page in my photo that I'm in my 20s folks that I see tend to be younger in age so I see folks that are pretty much between the age of 20 and 55 roughly
2: just because they want to be some like want to have a someone close to their age presumably
0: okay. yeah so As a result of that, there are a lot of folks that are a couple years older than me or a couple years younger than I am. And it is really cool to see how folks in our generation or just a little older or just a little younger are way more open seemingly about their mental health than folks that are older. Obviously my um, kind of sample size is skewed because people probably want to be with me if they're in a similar age range. However, I also think that there is a growing comfort with therapy, the younger you are.
1: You know, there's a common critique uh, from the political right that this generation is a bunch of snowflakes, quote unquote. Mitch Daniels actually brought that up during John's and my (laughs) commencement. Um, Do you think that that's a valid critique or is this sort of uh, embracing emotion and recognizing hurt to the level that we see in millennials and Gen Zers? Is that completely healthy or is there any downside
0: so i think there's two questions there the first one is this a valuable critique the answer of course being no that's clearly just intending to be rude to people that they disagree with calling someone a snowflake is by no means respectful or helpful the secondary question of is alignment and introspection reflection on one's emotions and problems helpful i think it absolutely is I think there is a limit to how helpful it can be. There are a lot of folks that when they do this on their own, they will build up a stack or a list of problems. And it's really challenging to find what the solutions are to those problems, depending on what they are. And when we live in a society that is, you know, frequently telling us, you know, work harder, think through it, problem solve, you know, mind over matter, um, you know, anything from the, you know, kind of the maybe politically right message of toughen up, pull yourself up by your bootstraps or the, you know, kind of that traditional message to the more current message of, you know, be true to yourself, you know, live, live your truth, right? There's not a clear definition of what any of those things are. And so there's not this socially accepted way to prove that you're kind of achieving it. And so without that, a lot of folks just kind of find that they're, they're knowing, they're knowing something's wrong, but they don't know how to fix it.
2: And that's presumably where you would come in and solve all their problems immediately.
0: Uh, yes, (laughs) immediately. Um, yeah. So that's where I see myself being helpful to people is I really view therapy as a resource for improving someone's quality of life. And for some folks, that's really obvious of how that might be, you know, whether that is resolving depression or other mental health issues. Uh, For others, it's not as obvious. And maybe it's just small behavioral changes. Maybe it is changing something about their lives, whether that's a job or a relationship. But at the end of the day, really, that's what I think therapy is, is a resource to be supported in improving your quality of life in a way that's collaborative and hopefully productive.
1: Sam, you've told me before your goal in therapy is to make men cry.
0: Yeah. So (laughs) um, that was a joke that I would uh, tell myself every once in a while in grad school. I actually think I stole it from um, spiritual mentors in undergrad of it being, it being something that was sometimes their goal when working with um, the men's groups of, of students. Um, but I think it's really important to uh, specifically for men, but for everyone as well to have conversations about what emotions are supposed to be and how they shouldn't be something that we moralize and fear and by opening up some of that conversation, providing some of that space, maybe even some education. um, I find that the folks that, you know, are making progress oftentimes are feeling that emotion more, hence making men cry.
1: Is it common for men to have trouble being comfortable crying? I mean, there's, we, we talk a lot about like toxic masculinity in Mm -hmm. culture. Have you found that to be true in that, Men are, are feel this need to suppress their emotions more than women.
0: Well, I can only speak for myself. I think that as a man, I think there is that pressure for, for us in society. And I have seen that seemingly echoed in experiences with clients, but also friends, that there is a uh, shortcoming in emotional education for men uh, and that i think emotional education is is failed in you know in kind of the traditional education settings for everyone right i was making the joke to you earlier alex that the last time you had education on emotions was probably kindergarten um and that's true for a lot of people in the united states so i think that mixed with historic messages of men needing to be tough or Crying being seen as feminine or childish, uh, I do think there is more kind of I don't I don't want to say stunting, but there is more um, kind of basic emotional awareness for men than maybe for others.
2: Can you can you give me an example of like what when we what you mean when you say emotional learning?
0: Yeah, so I have been on a recent kick with um, clients of describing emotions as messengers Um, similar to our senses our emotions come in their physiological that uh, their physiological experiences that we interpret mentally just like our senses right if i touch this candle in front of me which uh, is very warm bordering on hot that sense tells me a message right the smell of it which is super nice by the way great great taste alex um <laughs> just i actually haven't alex's tasted candle. that candle <laughs> uh did i say taste
1: No, <laughs> yeah, you said great taste it, you were meaning uh, great selection yeah, okay, um <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: that, that was a very punny joke there thank you sam's rubbing off of me so <laughs> good i uh, i sam i, I take i'm um, taken aback by the fact you just assume that was alex's candle and not mine
0: am i wrong
2: you are wrong. I'm the
1: biggest candle mooch in the house. I have candles. They're all in my room, though. I, I really like where you're going with this. Emotions are a messenger. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like you're getting that from the uh, Disney movie uh, Inside Out, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to call you out on plagiarism. Please, <laughs> no, I just did. Um, it, a specific question there. I had a friend recently tell me that they have a lot of nightmares related to past trauma, mm. but they don't mind the nightmares because it is their body's way of telling them something needs to be resolved. They are, the nightmares are the messenger, just like our senses are. Is that an example?
0: Absolutely. And actually to push back against the inside out reference, that's almost exactly what I'm telling people emotions are messengers to avoid, right? That imagery of our emotions driving our brains. That is, you know, literally what the characters do in that movie is the goal to avoid. If we view our emotions as messengers and we ask, what's that message? We then have the option to say, I don't want to act based on that message. Whereas if we don't ask more often than not, they are, those emotions are the things that are pulling the levers in what we do.
2: So there's almost a kind of an ask for like self control or for like kind of will, it's like a willpower element.
0: Uh, behavioral control, maybe, uh, probably more toward the self-control than the willpower bit. Um, cause the goal is not to stop ourselves from feeling those emotions. The goal is not to stop ourselves from wanting to do the things that those emotions are prompting us to, but the goal is to take a second, slow down, care for ourselves enough that we can ask what's the appropriate response and then do that instead of what. The emotion may initially say what you should do.
1: Sam, I am always asking you questions about <laughs> <laughs> about therapy, and you are always so knowledgeable and passionate about the subject. I'm curious where did that passion come from? How long has this been something that you've been interested in?
0: Yeah, great question. So parts of it are that transition from political science that we already touched on. I can cover that a little bit more too, but um I think the interest in mental health care specifically um, came about, I think more or less kind of from my own experience. Um, I am someone who is maybe not quick, but fairly comfortable to talk with others about my own mental health challenges that I've experienced throughout my life. Um, You know, depression in and out, different moments of it. And that runs in my family. And is something that I've experienced most of my life, to a degree. And I can recall moments where, as a child, feeling upset, not knowing why, kind of feeling this dysregulation, and my mom saying, it's okay to be sad and not know why. And that sticks with me. Um, I don't know that I have necessarily directly quoted that yet in a therapy session, but I think it's so important to to share that message with others of you know it's okay for us to feel these things and it's okay for us to not know why but we can also respond to those in a positive way so i think that's what drew me to it i think also a little bit of that generational change that we talked about of people our age and and a little older but also younger as well being more comfortable admitting vulnerability emotionally mental health wise and, and just kind of being a part of that because I think it's so important and is so intricately tied to emotional and physical and spiritual health.
1: What proportion of mental health challenges, specifically depression, tend to be based in situational depression, AKA someone's gone through a breakup, they're feeling like they're not popular in high school and that causes depression versus just dysregulation of hormones in the body. And is it a, a perfect even split between people who can you have both? Is my question.
0: So the question of, can you have both is yes. The, the question of what's the breakdown. I couldn't begin to tell you. I, I don't have the stats in front of me of what that would look like, but it, it is. I think that the genetic component that people will reference is often a vulnerability more than a i don't know uh sentence or something that they're uh unable to avoid and so someone who has that genetic predisposition is more likely to be situationally affected by other things i think it you know the way that i view it with myself is kind of just this added vulnerability to my emotions so (laughs) i made the joke earlier we're, we're recording this podcast uh in the evening, I made a joke that I'm not really a real human being after 9.30 p.m. I notice myself being pretty tired and cranky, just like a toddler sometimes at this time. And I just kind of attribute that to that added vulnerability. Some people are super good night owls. I'm not one. I need nine hours of sleep. Otherwise, I'm at risk of feeling bummed out.
1: And we're recording this, by the way, after 10 p.m., 30 minutes past Sam's bedtime. Yeah, so, I feel like I'm doing great. Yeah, he's giving us a, a, a devil eyes and uh, he's going <laughs> to lash out at any moment. If any you hear moment. screams, <laughs> at Sam attacking
2: us. <laughs> Sam, one of the other kind of themes that have has come up frequently in our conversations has been around friendships and some of the mm-hmm. fragility and the importance of proactivity in friendships. Why why is that top of mind for you?
0: Sure. Well, how it's come up for us in the past, John, has been conversations about it being hard in moments to kind of balance this feeling of I wanna be pursued, I want people to reach out to me, and also the realization that, you know, I'm responsible for that just as much as anyone else and you know, you are for your friends and, and, and the like. I think that has been top of mind over this last year especially, but also the last couple years because of the mix of COVID making, you know, social scenes and and networks a little bit more um, distant and also having moved here to Chicago um, almost a year ago. And as that geographic change has occurred, there's just been a little bit more reflection on what are the friendships that I want to maintain and what's it going to take in order to do that while also, you know, balancing the ego, uh, hits of when I feel like someone should have reached out to me and, and they didn't.
1: Yeah. I'm curious if either of you experienced this, but Sam, what you were saying was triggering this in my mind. It's easy to become resentful or insecure about a friendship if there is a series of times when you reach out and the other other person isn't free, even if they have legitimate excuses. Yeah. Right. We are very quick to write off a friend's interest in seeing us when they're going through just a busy season and they, they don't have time. I, I find that I reach out to people, people less and less if they turn down plans with me more than once or more than twice, sure. which probably is not a healthy way of going about friendships.
0: Definitely an understandable one, though. I think the message that we're getting when someone says no is a message that is one that we're kind of left to interpret. Is this just truly a moment where they're just saying no to this situation, or is this a moment where they're saying no to more? And not to you know tie it back to what I've already said, but that's a great example of emotions telling us a message that may or may not match the facts. And something for me that I've had to reflect on a lot recently is that moment of, you know, if I'm feeling a little bit resentful or hurt, I have to ask the question of, am I doing the same thing that I'm expecting of them, but also the question of, do they know what I am expecting? And I think that can be a really tough one because it's, you know, fairly obvious that if you're a friend, you should be reaching out, but That should word, um, you know, doesn't always match the ability or the circumstance for folks. They may like to, they may want to, but just because they don't doesn't mean they're deprioritizing someone.
2: And I'm curious if we were to back up a second, sure, in terms of all this discussion, what is the purpose of friendships in the context of what? What we're talking about here this is almost this conversation is almost making friendships seem very like transactional in nature sure is is that the case is it something else entirely
0: no i think i think the the thing that i've been reflecting on over the last year and even even beyond that is just how much of friendships and relationships is proximity And when that proximity is different or changed, it just becomes a different animal. It just becomes a different game. And I think that the reason I've been thinking about it more is just because that game has changed, because it is a new situation, but also I want to demonstrate to others that I care. And I just have to kind of take this extra step of maturity and action to make that work.
1: You can almost think of friendships in three Tiers, right? Okay. I'm a big framework guy. So, <laughs> okay. bottom tier is like almost people you associate with just because you have to. Like, I was just at a training for BCG this week, and it's like I met some really nice people. I enjoyed talking with them, but like, will either of us reach out to the other person? Probably not. There's the second tier of like, you are friends with this person, genuine friends, but because you are close in proximity. So, you're, you share mm-hmm. a class, you sit next to each other in church, you grab brunch after church, whatever. There's this really rare third tier Mm -hmm. that transcends location and transcends these petty feelings of who is and who isn't reaching out. And those are the friendships that are worth preserving throughout your life. Because for whatever reason, both people find so much value in the relationship that they want to make it work, even when someone moves, even when they get busy, even when they get married. And that is a very rare type of friendship. And that is the type of friendship that should be pursued most uh, proactively. Do you see value in that thinking of it that way, Sam?
0: No, I totally agree. I totally agree. And, and I think that's the takeaway that I'm trying to remind myself of. And, and that's the reason we've had these conversations is just to re- remind each other of is it's easier in the moment to see the challenge. It's easier in the moment to see the problem. But if we zoom out, oftentimes the relationships that we're thinking that way about, we do have to ask a question of, is this the pers- are these the people that we will treasure and care about even if they reach out to us next week instead of right now? And if, it, if the answer is yes, then we can go ahead and show that appreciation first. And it doesn't have to be transactional. It doesn't have to be even because we know that it's still valuable.
2: One of one of the trends that's really interesting is you have technology coming. Well, I mean, technology is already here. Yeah. But those really, really important relationships that you have, it's so much easier to keep those alive and those flourishing even in a long-distance capacity. Do you think that prevents... A necessary kind of turnover in terms of relationships, and in terms of developing new, really close relationships, in, in the places where you find yourself being, um, the more like proximity-oriented relationships, and moving those from looking at your framework, Alex, moving the the tier twos to the tier ones, um, and I know that there's obviously a trade-off there between like maintaining long-distance relationships and building new like mm-hmm. short-distance relationships. But what are your thoughts in terms of you know technology and that?
0: I think that's a great question, John, and I am not gonna. I don't feel I'll give a great answer to it, but I've honestly just been so grateful um, recently to have those long distance friends that I know will be there in my corner that I can call on the phone and talk to. And you know what's funny is the you know the some of the ones that I am thinking of as I as I talk about they. We were friends that we, you know, we were good friends, but we became better friends because we used to live together for a short pe- period of time during the height of the pandemic. And suddenly we were the people that we were spending time with all the time. And it did shift from, you know, this kind of normal level friends to, well, now we're most of each other's social circle. And now we've shifted to this entirely nude thing where it is, we're, we are distant they're in different states than i am and yet i'm so grateful to have that because i know that i can talk to them about whatever and so my one of my huge goals for moving here to chicago was building up new friendships pretty social um and very extroverted and i knew that if i was going to be giving a lot of energy in therapy socially i also needed to get that energy back so In this transition, I I feel like I've made great friends. You guys here are definitely part of that. And I'm grateful to be here and talking to you guys about it. And at the same time, having that intermediate supplement of my friends over long distance, super helpful. Um, I don't have an iPhone though, so I'm not on the FaceTime train. Maybe that's next. But I avoid texting you for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> just, just
2: I, well, I think what you're making what you're saying makes sense, where there there is still a synergy, one does not replace the other, which which yeah. is encouraging to me. And I think when when you're telling that story, I think the discussion on like what brings a friend from a tier two to a tier one.
0: Yeah. It's texting memes to each other. It's That's texting what it memes is. <laughs> or, or
2: living together. Uh, hey, there we go. We're doing a podcast together. Right? Oh, uh, is that what this is? is this, do we need to have a DTR, John?
1: <laughs> 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 oh my gosh. Um, actually that brings back something you said earlier, Sam, about setting expectations. That's so interesting to me. I don't know that I ever had like a DTR with a friend about what the friendship is. Do you think, something like that ever should be verbally discussed and to our listeners at home
0: if so how yeah so dtr meaning define the relationship conversation yes um you know for those that don't speak that acronym i am a proponent of that that's um in addition to talking about emotions i'm talking about communication with clients all the time too and i've had a couple um conversations with friends some of them more intentional than others about what i'm looking for in our friendship in terms of communication especially over distance and what they're hoping for and even in moments where we haven't lived up to those expectations where we've named them and then still not kept it up in the way that we were planning to having just voiced my my hopes has been super huge because them hearing me say hey i would love for us to talk more and then responding with me too i would like that let's try to prioritize it the next time something got in the way it was easier to say okay i'm gonna trust that they meant it and that this this denial is just because they're busy and they truly are
1: what other option do they have though in response to hey i'd like to talk more like i have people from from my past mm-hmm. who have indicated excitement about hanging out even though they continuously turned down plans and I, w- I always thought like, Oh, why didn't you just tell me you didn't want to hang out? But yeah. who wants to be that guy? Like if you're on the other side of a friendship where you're not getting what you need, you don't think it's, uh, it's edifying to you or them. What is the other option when you don't want to be in that friendship?
0: Sure. I mean, I'm definitely a proponent for being honest, but you can't force other people to be honest or mature with you. So I, I think that's a, a real question. I, I've been really fortunate that the conversations that I've mentioned were with friends that I had close relationships to, were with friends that I trusted, and when they came back and responded, I believed them. And I knew that if they were going to kind of push back and say, yeah, but I, I want that, but this is a better expectation... I expected that they would say that that was of course the fear i didn't want to have those conversations for that very reason of what if they say no but um i think that it was valuable to just say hey this is what i'm feeling this is what i'm hoping for can we work something out
2: and th- so some of these friendships you had you had mm-hmm. were they back in michigan
0: yeah absolutely so uh, yeah the friends that i'm talking about are friends from college
2: nice and so you've kind of transitioned. See, this is a, this is a transition now. No, I'm calling it out though. So maybe I'm ruining the, uh, but you, you had an experience where you moved from that small town engaging with them day in and day out to moving to, um, a city. Mm-hmm. How is that transition and, um, how has that like changed the way that you've looked back on that small town experience?
1: Sure. Um, before Sam answers, I think John, we should have a bingo for a podcast. Where people have to note down anytime we say transition or anytime we say we live in a society (laughs) Those are two very common things we say Anyway, sorry to interrupt
2: continue Uh,
0: Yeah, I moved from saline, michigan to ann arbor for college I stayed there for undergrad stayed there for grad school um, and then moved to chicago. So I I felt like I made you know a little bit of a transition from the small town vibe to you know the, a college town, which not much bigger in terms of area, but definitely more populous and definitely more people, um, especially my age at that time. And it did feel very different, like a new place, even though it was a whopping nine miles away from where I had grown up, and. I loved that. I loved the freedom of it. I loved the experience and being able to walk to different restaurants, walk to you know a movie theater if I so chose, though I, I really did. But just being able to walk to my friend's apartments or the park or, or entertainment or good food, I loved that. And so when uh, people I was meeting in grad school would kind of make comments of, oh, you grew up here and you've never gone anywhere else that mixed with the feeling of having kind of reached a i don't know maybe a growth ceiling in in ann arbor led me to ask well where would i like to go next because i feel like i would be robbing myself of an opportunity if i didn't go at least somewhere for a little while And so I was asking that question. I wanted to go to a bigger city. Like I said, I loved walking to entertainment, to parks, to restaurants. And so I wanted something that had more of that. I wanted kind of the Ann Arbor from Celine to Ann Arbor experience again. And so I was looking at bigger cities. Ann Arbor is not that big of a city and settled on Chicago because it's in the Midwest, still close to my family. I can take an Amtrak back to Ann Arbor whenever I want. And and yeah, it's just been different. I think it's been cool in a lot of the ways that I was expecting and also very mundane in a lot of the ways that I probably didn't expect. But um, but that's kind of been the initial takeaways at the, you know, kind of just broad strokes.
2: Do you think you'll stay, this is a tangent to our conversation, but do you think you'll stay in Chicago for a while?
0: Uh, I do. I don't have a plan. Uh, I was actually... Over this weekend, visiting my friend in New York, I had mentioned us making dumb jokes while walking around. Uh, he and I were talking about that. He lives in New York City, and I was asking him how long he would stay and talking about how long I think I might. But I think right now the thought is, at the very least, I'll stay another year or so just until I get a full full licensure for, for social work, and then I have the option. But I think at the moment my hope is to stay, you know, Presumably until I, you know, kind of find someone, start a relationship, and then see whether that relationship moves us somewhere else.
1: I I don't hear you coming on the the side of pro-city or pro-rural, ever the moderate you are. Um, (laughs) Yeah, no
0: hot takes here. I already told you that.
1: (laughs) Um, I'm curious if you find that any of the mental health challenges that you see in therapy seem to be related to the fact that these individuals are living in a big city, lots Mm -hmm. of people, very fast paced. Do you ever prescribe like a nice walk in the woods?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's a, that's a great question. I mean, I do encourage people to exercise, get out in nature. It's probably, it's kind of hard to say, (laughs) go take a walk in the woods here in the city. But I do think there is an extra just kind of momentum hustle and bustle in, in Chicago compared to, um Ann Arbor I think there's the academic version of that at U of M of course but um but I think that it's just um I think that really draws attention to like people's anxiousness of they have to perform right and I feel that too it's being a young professional what do I do what do I have to achieve and I think that goes back to what we had talked about of you know just that pressure and those emotions of there's so many problems that I'm seeing but what are the solutions
1: And I would imagine these individuals that you're getting to know through your counseling and just through being in a larger city are um, in general, much more secular than the, the cohort of people that you would engage with oftentimes back in Ann Arbor. Mm -hmm. Um, Has that been any sort of culture shock for you? And uh, how has the adjustment been?
0: For sure. It's been uh, a pretty big culture shock, but in, in a way, that's less about it being different and more about almost kind of my response to it being different. So Ann Arbor is a pretty secular town, pretty highly educated, the most educated town in, in Michigan in terms of degrees held by people that live there. Um, and so there there are a lot of people that are secular. There are a lot of people there of different religions and faiths. But I would you know, I did a really good job in culture of finding my people in, in church communities in multiple church communities. And, and I, I felt, you know, like I was in a part of a family and and groups that I felt a part of. And as I moved here to Chicago, it's not that that's changed, right? I found this group of guys in our, our small group and, and that's been super helpful to me. And at the same time, because of my job, and because of interactions with other people, I am interacting with so much more, just kind of proportionally, of folks that are either non-religious or agnostic or atheist. And yeah, I have noticed a lot of just this feeling of lostness shared by those people that I think really moves me and and, and hurts to witness, but also really calls to mind, you know, the the difference of the hope of the gospel versus this pile of problems that we had mentioned.
1: There is so much complacency within the Christian community of witnessing to others, because oftentimes we see the lives of those around us as just as valid or just as life giving as the life that a Christian lives. And it sounds like what you're saying is no, based on what I've seen and based on my understanding of humanity, uh, the best way to achieve, personal Nirvana or something mm-hmm. is, is through the gospel mm-hmm. and it breaks your heart to see that so many people in Chicago do not have that hope.
0: Absolutely. I think to also, you know, maybe not to get too depressing on us here, but I think that a lot of what I've been experiencing in this transition to the new city in, you know, kind of the emotional wear and tear of, of the gig I have. Um, but also, um our very long winter that maybe is ending next week um fingers crossed <laughs> fingers crossed um has been honestly just feeling pretty bummed over the last several months in a lot of ways and i think that i actually i really like what you said alex of you know we often think of other people's lives and kind of like where they get meaning from and kind of their value system is just as valid as ours. Well, if you take my source of meaning and kind of lifestyle and and whatnot and you subtract Jesus from it, um, (laughs) I don't really want that for anyone, right? I think that it is pretty challenging to ask these questions about, yeah, what do I do? What's the point of it? what's next what what do i leave behind and and if we don't have something outside of that that reminds us that we're loved we're pursued we're known and we have a purpose because it was given to us i think it is really challenging to to kind of accept those questions as open ended without it being really challenging
1: yeah that's that's so good i mean every every aspect of who we are is dirty rags relative to somebody more successful than us, right? There's always, there's always somebody that does better things with their time is more intelligent than us. And we are just a speck of dust in the grand scale of earth and the universe. And so we are utterly insignificant and worthless apart from
2: God. Getting some, <laughs> uh, godly nihilism in here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, on. totally. Totally. <laughs> and I, I think part of that, that statement almost reminds me of the fact that, there is it is more acceptable in our culture today to discuss things that we're really passionate about Mm -hmm. and if we're really passionate about hey um like my life is being transformed and has been transformed by this gospel thing that it is easier even more expected to discuss that in more secular environment just because that is a form of self-expression in in and of itself to talk about your faith
0: Absolutely. It's a good way to use the, the system against itself, or I guess the the social um, freedoms that we're kind of given but expected to use um, in order to remind others that, hey, there can be truth with a capital T. And I think that, that is an opportunity that I try hard to, to, to live out of and, and represent of. Hey, I want to be authentic with the people I'm getting to know. I want to bring what I can to those relationships and those conversations. And if I'm being authentic, I'm going to mention church. I'm going to mention Jesus. I'm going to mention um, those things that I find valuable. And I'm going to talk about work in, in the light of the, you know, kind of the ministry I see it to be. I'm going to talk about, you know, the things that I'm pursuing in my life in that context of it being just a part of it. You know what
1: else Sam is going to talk about? Soapbox. 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 I was
2: about to transition. Sam, (laughs) you were actually on the time because my laptop battery is at 3%. Oh, yikes. And so at the end of every call uh, and the end of every podcast. (laughs) At the end of every Zoom call. At uh, the end of every Zoom call, at the end of every uh, chat in with the mixer here. Uh, we give our guests um, thirty seconds to a minute to talk about something that they are very passionate about, and that's Whoa. also kind of quirky.
0: Very passionate about. Okay. Very. So this. Uh, or a
2: hot take or anything at all.
0: Like I said, no hot takes here. And
2: I'm glad I'm recording this because I'm gonna run downstairs and grab a charger while we're running this. So, okay. Uh, I'll, I'll listen back on it. Give sure. me one sec.
0: So my. Sam, you can use this time to soapbox
1: uh, to say everything you don't like about John. Since yeah. John's not here yeah 10
0: things i hate about john he's so handsome (laughs) he's taken (laughs) Um, (laughs) and he won't charge his laptop who didn't think ahead for that um do you want me to just go ahead yeah okay (laughs) great so this is for the sci-fi fans that also listen to the pod nope i'm not ready for it anymore (laughs) You can't speak. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is maybe as much of a soapbox as I could think of that wasn't already something that we talked about. But uh, foreign sci-fi is way higher quality on Netflix than a lot of the stuff it's in terms of TV shows uh, than a lot of the things that we're likely talking about seeing. So I guess Stranger Things is an exception. But if you're looking for something to make you think a little bit more than you want to... Uh, I would recommend, or if you want to be sad and think more than you want to, uh, Alice in Borderland. And if you want to think more than you want to, and maybe have a little bit of romance in there, Ad Vitam. Uh, Sorry, that's not the one I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of Osmosis. Both are good. Both are French. Uh, And Alice in Borderland is Japanese. So, subtitle, sci-fi. Netflix has got my name. It sounds like Sam
1: has a recommendation for our international movie night tomorrow, John.
2: That that it, that it does.
0: I guess I have to find movies in there too. <laughs> then maybe we can make that work.
2: Uh, can I be even more hot taking and expand that hot take to say that all domestic Netflix shows are bad? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't won't sign my name to it. It's a hot take right now,
1: given Netflix's stock drop. But I would imagine Sam. Then you're okay with subtitles in films. A lot of people are very anti-subtitle.
0: Yeah, I, I <laughs> I'm that's what I'm realizing recently is that most of the stuff I watch has subtitles, which makes washing the dishes challenging because I can't multitask. So I guess the dishes have to be done later.
2: Are you a big anime guy?
0: Um, I like some of them. I wouldn't say a big anime guy. <laughs> I don't know.
2: Who would publicly? <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's a great wow. question. I,
2: I actually, I think that's actually, we'll have some uh, f- mm. uh, fan mail come through about uh, pushing back on that statement, Alex. That's all right. They don't know my address. Well, <laughs> I, I did mention that I'd come back to the proudest accomplishment at the end of the show, and there's a mm, reason for that. Yeah. So you are pretty proud of having <laughs> earned a master's degree.
0: Yeah. It's a moderate achievement. And
2: you're a second place accomplishment being on the pod being on the pod (laughs) so um i i do think you were an uh, impressive enough guest to be on this podcast thanks yeah please don't delete this whole episode that would be such a shame
1: (laughs) no sam like truly this was a delight um giving us a lot to think about here and hopefully we can have you on again sometime soon
0: that would be great whoa would that be the first repeat guest yeah.
1: Um, well we've also told that to number of <laughs> people So oh, okay, sh- well, okay. Uh, just Something's get in line in a couple of just let
0: me know what it costs in we'll the meantime
1: sam uh out. you know i'm gonna turn down plans from you a few times in a row and vice versa yeah we can you just, gotta we
0: can keep test me humble the friendship. Yeah, yeah you actually, gotta i, I think this humble. is the
2: opportunity for me to say to you that i think we should prioritize our friendship more and i'd like to get All coffee right. with you so uh, um oh right.
1: yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna make john and sam get a room to do this dtr here ladies and gentlemen <laughs> have a wonderful night we'll see you again next time right, bye
0: bye